scripture passage this morning is uh, from Mark chapter 9, verses 42 to 50. We pick up where we have uh, left off from our previous messages. Uh, actually, back in September, uh, as you know, we spent the month of October, those five Sundays, looking at the five solas. So we return again to uh, the narrative of what Mark is giving here in terms of uh, the ministry, the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ, uh, what Mark describes as the gospel of the Son of God. So reading to you from Mark chapter 9, verses 42 on through 50. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Let's pray. Father, um, in coming to this text this morning, uh, where we encounter these very serious and solemn words of the Lord Jesus Christ. We would pray for uh, the depth of the illumination of your Holy Spirit to be with each one of us. Father, it's not so much at times the understanding of what is said, it's the willingness to embrace and to believe what is said to the sanctification and transformation of our lives under the influence of your sovereign grace. And so that's what we would pray for this morning. We would pray, Father, that you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and then lips to speak what is right, what is good, what is true in your eyes, so that ultimately the authority and name of Jesus can be properly honored, lifted up, exalted, and we might prove to be disciples bearing much fruit, which glorifies you. And this we would pray. In the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, amen. I want to begin with a quote from Bishop J.C. Ryle. Now, that name may not be familiar to you, but it was very familiar to Charles Spurgeon, uh, the great Baptist preacher, very familiar to the great uh, theologians of the old Princeton. Uh, they all loved Bishop J.C. Ryle because he was one of the godliest lights in the Anglican Church in England in the late 19th century. Uh, this is what he has to say about this particular passage where the Lord Jesus Christ addresses the topic of hell. He says, It is not possible to say too much about Christ, but it is quite possible to say too little about hell. Here we come to one of the most serious passages in all of the book of Mark because it brings us to consider the reality of hell. Now, whenever I spend a few moments thinking about hell, that's not often, but whenever I do, I actually think back to the kind of preaching that I was exposed to uh, when I was a youngster 
uh, in the Southern Baptist Church here in Bakersfield. I am grateful for this preaching that I was exposed to as a child. I cannot remember any particular sermon at all. But what I do remember is that the constant theme of most of the messages I listened to was essentially this. We are all sinful human beings before God. And that means you, youngsters, as well. Uh, We deserve everlasting hell, a place of everlasting punishment and suffering. And if we do not repent and come to Jesus, that is where we will go after we die. It was the constant message about the danger of hell and the hope of a Savior which God actually used to lead me to Christ. Now, what dominates this passage, by the way, from verses 42 through 50, is, in fact, the reality of hell. And Christ uses this reality to emphasize the seriousness of sin. And whenever Jesus places an emphasis upon anything specific in his teaching, we must take note and we need to embrace that emphasis as well. Christ as Redeemer, Christ as our Savior, does not make sin insignificant, something we no longer need to be concerned about. The gospel is not that sin isn't really that bad. Rather, the gospel is about sin being so bad, so evil in God's sight, so enslaving, that those who sin can't solve that problem. Therefore, it takes God. God to do everything. God's own redeeming work upon the cross. And then the application of that work to us by His Holy Spirit to solve the human predicament of sin. Sin never loses its character as enmity, hostility, and rebellion against God. But the gospel is that Christ is the propitiation for our sins. This is the only way under heaven given by which we must be saved. So this passage is all about the seriousness of sin and the reality of hell. My intention is to take the passage and to divide it into its three natural parts and to look at how the reality of hell bears upon the seriousness of sin as Jesus is describing it here. So this morning, I want us to look at the seriousness of... of, Let me step back and say that again. This morning, I want us to look at the reality of hell and the ruin of others. Next week, the reality of hell and the ruin of ourselves... And then the third week, the reality of hell, and then how that affects the proper living out of the Christian life. Now, the main point of this morning's message is to recognize the connection between the terrible reality of hell and the moral seriousness of any one of us being a direct factor in tripping up or the stumbling or the leading astray of a younger believer. Jesus is warning us in verse 42 that the fate, the destiny of such a person 
who leads a younger believer astray is worse than the worst death that we can possibly imagine. Now, the reason for these instructions, putting this into larger context, is that Christ is training his disciples to be the leaders and shepherds of the church. Uh, It's going to be their responsibility to teach and to guide new believers, those who are growing in Christ, uh, in everything that Christ himself has commanded, just as it says in the Great Commission. He said, teaching them everything that I've commanded you. So Jesus is warning them that they in particular must watch their lives and their doctrine closely because of how serious it is ever to lead another believer astray. So our focus then will be on verse 42. And I want to open, open up the meaning of the text in this way. First, I want to show the reality of hell, which dominates this passage. Secondly, I want to indicate the horror of this hell, which is the basis of the warning and threat that Jesus is giving. And then thirdly, I want to point out how the reality of hell indicates the seriousness of the sin which Jesus is condemning. So, first of all, I want us to see how the reality of hell dominates this position. Now, you note in verse 42 that Jesus doesn't specifically mention hell. There's no direct reference there. But he does make direct references in verse 43, 45, and 47. In those verses, Jesus is referring to the ruin of oneself by whatever would lead you into sin and how that ruin is identified with going to hell. But if our own sin, which leads us astray, puts us on the path to hell, how much more the things we would do to lead others to hell as well by the things that we would teach, the things that we would say, and the things that we would do. Do you understand the argument? If we can lead ourselves to hell, and that's serious, well, how much more serious it is to not only plunge ourselves into ruin, but to take others with us. That's why we see in verse 42 that what stands behind that verse is as much the reality of hell as the rest of the verses in this passage. I think Jesus is saying that it would be better for the person who causes anyone else to sin to die the horrendous death that he speaks about in verse 42 immediately than to find himself suffering in the unquenchable fires of hell. Okay, so so much for the first point. The reality of hell dominates this passage. Moving into the second point, we need to consider the horror, the horrific nature of hell. Because that's the basis of the warning and threat that Jesus is giving. Now, before I get into this, I want us to recognize that... um, For the last 20-some years, some of the best and astute observers of what's been happening in in the church in America, so-called Bible-believing churches, have spoken routinely about the demise of hell. Not that hell no longer exists. (laughs) Um, But the demise of the preaching of the reality of hell to the American public. Or a twisting of the doctrine of hell so that it's, it's not the classic historic doctrine of hell, but it's something 
less significant or less horrific. Uh, we find this uh, diagnosed extensively in D.A. Carson's book, The Gagging of God. He has an entire section on, on how the doctrine of hell is trying to be reworked so that it's not quite as horrific or terrible. Uh, some moving in the direction of saying, in the end, God will empty hell of everyone, even the devil, so that everyone can live in universal love with God. There's no ability to get there to that point from Scripture if you honor Scripture. And then there are those who, who think, no, there really must be a hell, but it's, uh, it's, it's, it's only going to be temporary. Uh, temporary in one or two fashions. Either people suffer long enough, and then they're released. Or they suffer long enough, and then God annihilates them as persons. They cease to exist forever. In either way, the reality of hell comes to an end. And then we have a classic doctrine, which is the horrific nature of hell, which we can see right here. We see it in verse 43. Hell is a place of unquenchable fire. And in verse 43, it's also a place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Uh, the word used here for hell is the word Gehenna. The background for this word is the Valley of Hinnon, which was south of Jerusalem, uh, which where before the exile, uh, the kings who began to follow paganism and worship pagan gods would actually pass their own children through the fire, making pagan sacrifices, infant sacrifices to their gods, Baal, Asherah, particularly Moloch. Then, after the exile, it became the garbage dump. When, when, when the Israelites, the Jews, seemed to be pretty much healed of all of their idolatrous nature, uh, that same place became the place where the refuge from the city of Jerusalem was dumped, uh, set on fire, and because there was daily being fed the garbage of the city, the fire never went out. And so it became a place of continual corruption, unquenchable fire, the worm never dying. Now, between the Old Testament time and the beginning of the New Testament time, uh, the word Gehenna then began to be used uh, in its metaphorical or in its symbolic way to describe the literal place that the Jews believed in, Already believing in the afterlife, they become increasingly clear that not only is there an afterlife, but the afterlife con contains the place where the unrighteous, the wicked, those who've rejected God are punished. So it became a synonym for eternal punishment, the place of eternal punishment. Their understanding was that anyone who goes there remains there in a place of punishment characterized by unquenchable fire forever. Now, in our day, it's very hard for people to hear this without recoiling in some fashion. Uh, I was looking at the Pew study on religious beliefs in America, and it indicated in the 2014 survey that uh, actually within America, believing and non-believing in America, uh, those who would identify as Christians, those who would identify as everything but atheists, that the, the largest percentage of people believe that there is a hell they do. They don't think they're going there. <laughs> but they think there is a hell, you know, for, for really bad people, like Hitler. Um, and then most of them don't really think it's as bad as it actually is. 
Um, it's important for us to note as Christians that the primary authoritative teaching on the doctrine of hell that we find in Scripture comes from the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Whether it's gospel teaching or the book of Revelation, it is from Christ that we know the most that we know about hell. And so when people who claim to be evangelicals slight the doctrine of hell, what other teachings of Jesus are they going to slight? So out of the lips of Christ, uh, you take the story of the rich man and Lazarus from Luke. And what does that show us? Well, it shows us that the, the suffering in hell, the suffering in the afterlife for the wicked who are going to be punished is going to be conscious. It's going to be painful. It's inescapable. It's miserable. There's remorse, but there's no true repentance. In the book of Revelation, chapter 14, uh, hell is presented as a place that is full of God's wrath, misery, torment that comes from the fire, and almost all the translations today say sulfur, but to remember back when you heard preaching that called it brimstone, fire and brimstone, because the brimstone and sulfur are the same element. Fire and brimstone, fire and sulfur. And the experience of God's wrath, according to chapter 14 of Revelation, is going to be unceasing. Those in hell have no rest from their torments. Now, I, I want to say right here, and I'm going to say more about this in the next couple of weeks, but the consistent, clear word in the, in the Bible about their, their pain is the word torment. It is never the word torture. And yet you hear those who cry against hell speaking of God sends people to hell in order to torture them. No. No. That's a cavil of the devil. No honest Christian should ever think that hell is a place of torture. Torture has nothing to do with justice. But the experience of God's wrath brings torment to the soul as well as painfulness to the resurrection body. We'll talk about that more in a couple of weeks. But the point is in chapter 14 of Revelation, there is no rest from that which they experience. It constantly torments them. Then in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus tells us, the hell is a fiery furnace where people there are weeping and gnashing their teeth. Most commentators say that that represents the weeping is, is a terrible sense of the hopelessness and despair and remorse. And the gnashing of teeth is frustration and anger. Uh, Jesus also says that in chapter 25 that people who are there are cursed. They share the eternal fire that God has prepared for the devil and his angels. Again, a place of eternal punishment. Outside of Jesus' own teaching in the New Testament, uh, Peter refers to hell as a place where the fallen angels are chained in gloomy darkness, being kept there until the day of judgment. Jude repeats that same thought and adds, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality 
and pursued unnatural desire serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. And then the Apostle Paul in 2 Thessalonians says, he speaks of the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord that will be visited upon those who do not obey the gospel. Now, here are some things that we know for certain. When a man flippantly says, well, I would prefer to go to hell because that's where all of my friends are going to be, he knows nothing. No one will have friends in hell. Remember, they don't serve breakfast in hell. Some of you remember the song reference. There is no friendship, no camaraderie, no source of any kind of comfort at all in human relationships or any relationship at all in hell. There will be nothing but constant torment. Further, the description of hell is it will be a place of utter darkness in a physical sense and a place of despair and foreboding in a psychological sense. Uh, This is why it's also a place without hope, Dante's Inferno. The inscription over the entrance to hell rightly, accurately says this, Abandon hope, all ye who enter here. It's a biblical truth. There are no second chances. Hell is a place of deepest regrets, deepest remorse, but no repentance, no change of heart. But we also know for certain it is a place of true justice. No one is ever sentenced to hell who has any claim on heaven. Why do you know that? Because even you and I who have a claim on heaven only have that claim because Christ died in our place. We must never forget as believers, never, that we deserved hell. Or Jesus would not have needed to die in your place. To confess the need for the Savior's blood is also to acknowledge that you deserved hell. Now that's how truly horrifying hell is. That's the backdrop. The nature of what people deserve who participate in the moral and spiritual stumbling of younger believers. So, last point. The concern specifically that Jesus mentions in verse 42. The connection between the terrible reality of hell and the moral seriousness of being a direct factor in leading a younger believer astray. Jesus says, again, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Now, remind ourselves of the identity of these little ones who believe in Jesus. Now, that takes us back to an earlier part of the chapter. Jesus is back in Capernaum. He's gathered with his disciples. 
because they've been talking to one another about who is the greatest. And that's when Jesus takes a little child and takes him in his arms right in front of the rest of the disciples and basically says, whoever receives one such child receives me. Whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Now, the point was that Jesus was laying the emphasis upon what true biblical leadership is all about. They were thinking about leadership in terms of position and power and influence. That's what they were looking for. We want to be the ones who are the top dogs in your kingdom, Jesus. And Christ is saying, no. You must have the deepest concern and service to those who are the least. And that's why he brings a little child, sits the child before him, because in the culture of the Jewish world in his day, as well as in the wider Greco-Roman culture in his day, children were not seen consistently as a gift of the Lord. No, uh, children were in fact minimized in terms of their, their importance, just as women were minimized in terms of their importance, just as the poor were despised in terms of their importance, just as the disabled were despised in terms of their importance. All of these characterize the little ones, the marginalized in the culture of Jesus' day. So Christ is laying an emphasis upon true leadership. Such leadership must never be too proud to minister to those who are the least. Calvin points out that Jesus was addressing the pride of leadership issue. So to cure this disease, Christ threatens a dreadful punishment if any man in his pride should throw down those who are oppressed with poverty or who in heart are already humbled. So then we go on to consider what Jesus says here about the severity of the sin. Think about the figure of speech that Jesus is using here, the millstone around the neck. Why doesn't Jesus say something more simple? I mean, can someone be deader than dead? You know, why doesn't Jesus say, better for a man to die right now than to ever lead a little one who believes in me astray? But instead, he uses what looks to be like an incredible hyperbole, an incredible picture of death. What's he saying by that kind of picture of death in this, this way? Well, Calvin goes on to say, to hang a millstone about a man's neck and drown him in the sea was the punishment then reckoned the most appalling and which was inflicted on the most atrocious malefactors. Basically saying that drowning a person in this way was one of the worst kinds of punishment that uh, society, probably the Roman society, uh, ever gave to someone who, besides crucifixion, which was a cruel kind of torture, but here was another way of demonstrating how awful the crimes were. They would take the, the large millstone, put it around a guy's neck, take him out on the ocean or out on the sea at Galilee, drop him in. Jesus is saying that what a person deserves who would lead a young believer astray as a fate and destiny that's worse than the most appalling form of human execution you can imagine. You would be better off suffering the most appalling form of death than what you actually deserve. And what do you actually deserve if you lead a young believer astray? What you actually deserve is the unquenchable fire of hell. 
That is what a person deserves who leads a younger believer astray. Now, consider the word for sin. This is not the ordinary word for sin. It's not the word for sin that means missing the mark of falling short of the glory of God. This particular word means to ensnare. It means to tempt. It means to entice. It means that which leads astray. It leads in, that which leads into sin. That's why the other translations, the, the, the uh, ESV and the NIV use the word sin here, but the New American Standard speaks of stumbling, and the King James tradition speaks of offending. It's the case, though, the word describes being a direct factor in leading someone else to sin. Well, how is this sin committed? How does one person stumble another? How does one person cause another person to sin? How is any person involved in the ruin and sin of another human being? Well, listen to how Jesus applied this to the scribes and the Pharisees. Matthew 23, verse 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Jesus is saying that it is clearly the teaching and the example of the scribes and Pharisees which is leading other people to become like them and becoming like them, they also come under the wrath and curse of God. Their conduct, their teaching, their example, the things they say, their religious ministry made Israel children of hell. That's what Jesus is accusing the scribes and Pharisees of having done. So then, to whom does this warning apply? Well, first and foremost... First and foremost, it applies to Christian leaders and Christian teachers. It applies to their teaching. It applies to their conduct and example. The teachings we endorse, the conduct we endorse, the conduct we display, all of these are either leading younger believers into greater godliness or into greater stumbling and sin. It is a serious matter if we find ourselves the instrument of another person's downfall. You and I know that when we read about a Christian leader failing and falling, it makes it far easier for others to fail and to fall in the same way. When we see online comments from Christian leaders which are biting, sarcastic, belittling, accusatory, judgmental, we find so many others who follow them who participate in doing the same thing. When we find a Christian leader beating the drum of his own particular doctrinal bandwagon, especially on the radio or television or the Internet, we find that bandwagon will carry along a hefty group of followers. Six years ago, Harold Camping maintained that on the 21st of May, 2011, Jesus 
was going to return. The consummation was going to happen. Everything was going to be wrapped up. Did this cause Christians to sin? Listen, Harold Camping had an orthodox view of God, an orthodox view of Christ, uh, even a reformed view of soteriology. And this was his eschatology. And what did people do who followed him? They sold everything they had to the serious ruin financially of many and then the desperate straits of their families and how many of those people left the Christian faith. And it gave atheists a great day to cheer and despise the stupidity of the Christian faith. The point is, false teachings, even from basically reliable teachers, will lead others to sin. For this reason, James says, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that those who teach will be judged with greater strictness. This also applies, then, to older Christians and their influence upon younger brothers and sisters in Christ. What older believers value, what they share their opinions about, how they behave, all of these aspects of their lives as Christians either help others or hurt others within the body. And lastly, it applies to Christian parents. Christian parents must think about the raising of their children with the teaching of Jesus in mind. I once had a teenager, a rebellious teenager, raised in church, say this to me. How can the Christian faith be true when my mother is such a joyless, bitter, and critical human being? Now, conclusion. Let's wrap all of this up in a gospel perspective. Christ is addressing the seriousness of sin. It is a very serious matter to be the cause of others sinning. Truthfully, not a single one of us has ever been free from this sin. We are fallen people. We are imperfect people. We are broken people. Our influence on others has never been always consistently a good and edifying influence. James says we all stumble in many ways. And then he goes on to describe how often our speech is that pathway to harmful influence upon others. Now, this only more deeply emphasizes our need for the gospel. We need everything that Christ did for us upon the cross to rescue us from everything we so justly deserve. We need that all that Christ has done for us, we need all that Christ does in us.
to enable us to will and to do his good pleasure. And so what does this do? It humbles us. There is definitely a call to be careful about our lives and careful with respect to others. But it also compels us to always live embracing the cross. If you and I felt the weight of this sin that we've committed against others, if you and I felt the weight of this sin, it would destroy us. Understand that at the cross, Jesus took the weight of this sin so that he could redeem us and give us hope and point us in the right direction and lead us in paths of righteousness for his name's sake so that we can humbly go through this life careful about how we live but always embracing the cross, always embracing what God has done for us in Christ because apart from Jesus, our lives are thoroughly destroyed. But in Christ, he has brought life and immortality to life through the gospel. So, sober, somber message. If you miss the gospel at the end of it all, you're missing the real point of it all. When you understand how awful your sin is, the Holy Spirit would want you to meditate on how incredibly sweet the gospel happens to be. So keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of your faith. Keep your eyes fixed on him, seated at the right hand of the Father, knowing that you have died and your life is now hidden with God in Christ. And when Christ is revealed, he too will reveal your life in glory. Live in light of the gospel. Amen. Let's pray. Father, Help us not to take sin lightly. Help us even more to not miss the power of the gospel to address our sin in every way. Help us to know that Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, that he has done it all for us. Enable us by your grace, by faith, to keep our eyes fixed on him. In his name, amen.